Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wow, not me. Rolling. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. On this week's show, we are laser focused upon photo booths. Where did they come from and where have they gone and what were they doing along the way? We'll also be talking to Brianna Conley Saxon about photo booths. She's got a few and we get to talk to her about them. There's the answering machine, some zine reviews, but first, but first, Vanya, how are you? I'm doing very, very well. Good. Um, recording a little bit earlier today, which is kind of interesting. Oh my god! I think I'm happy about this. <laughs> I'm I'm happy that you are happy. I've been shooting a little bit more as of lately. Okay. August, I didn't really shoot very much, so that's been refreshing. I've been really happy to actually get some images developed and scanned. So I'm pretty happy about that. Planning a trip in November. I might be headed kind of east for a few days. We'll see. Cool. Cool. Taking. Some some cameras for that of course okay then you have to report back you guys will hear all about it i'm sure awesome so how have you been well you know it seems like i just keep saying on like episode after episode that i'm developing and not doing much else and that's because i'm developing and not doing much else <laughs> So as I've been developing, I've been noticing I've had a few issues with the photos that came out of the Chamonix 4x5. I tracked it down to a bellows issue. And so I contacted the company and showed them the photos of the bellows and what I think was maybe the problem. And they sent me a replacement of the bellows. Oh, cool. Yeah. And that's really wonderful. I mean, that shouldn't be wonderful. That should just be normal that a company stands behind their product. And, and you know, not a lot of companies do that right now. And that's really, really wonderful. It's a refreshing turn of events. So that's what I've been doing. <laughs> Not a whole lot, but we've been working on the podcast. We're doing a lot of things like that. We've come up with some new ideas for the podcast. And one of those new ideas is a trivia question. Are you excited <laughs> about this? I am ecstatic. <laughs> Hold on, let me uh, just allow me to extricate it from its paper prison. And okay, our inaugural trivia question is... Who was the first artist to incorporate the photo booth into their work? And that answer will come a little later in the show, so hang tight. <laughs> We're all theatrics over here. <laughs> we are frankly shocked at all the support that we've received recently. We've talked about doing Patreon for like a year now. We can't begin to explain how this whole experience has felt. This podcast has helped both Eric and I stay sane through these rough times, and we hope it has for you as well. When it comes to support, we've got a lot of people to thank, specifically, as of this recording, 36 of them. And these are the aforementioned shout-outs. So, Vanya, who have we got to thank this week? Alan Mills. Mike Crawford. Matthew Stubbs. Ken Bertram. Shades. Janet Devereaux Gaffney. Ryan Barker. Liz Potter. Michelle Singletary. Ralph Brandy. Martine Ventura. Colin Cameron. Space Critter. Jaya Bot. Alex Purcell. Omols. Steve Tester. Alex Morrison. Mills Mills. Adam Roberts. Tim Anderson. Dan Tree. Or Socks. Kate Miller Wilson. Jonathan Fang. Juliet Schwab. Michael Dales. Colleen Matorn. Robert Burton. Abel Silva. Kiki Wilkins. 
Alan Joseph Marks, Dave Walker, James Huffstutler, Jamie Maldonado, and Nick Gaylord. Thank you. Thank you all so much for your support. Yes. You have really no idea how much it means to us. And if you, the listener at home, if you want to hear the bonus episodes and the extended interviews and a bunch of other stuff, head on over to patreon.com slash all through the lens to check us out. Each episode, we ask you, the listener, to leave us a voice message answering whatever the hell question we come up with. This episode, the question is... Do you compose differently for color versus black or white? And we didn't mean like shooting different things, like I only shoot neon in color or something like that. I mean shooting just the same scene in general. We got um, a bunch of responses this time around. So, Vanya, why don't you push the button? All right. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi guys, it's Tanya with Trench Photos 365 and Trench Photos. I don't really compose differently for color in black and white, but if I'm shooting color, I think there are going to be some scenes that I'm more attracted to, and if I'm shooting black and white, there are going to be some things that I just walk away from because I feel like it would translate better in color. Do you do that? Do you walk away from scenes that you can't that you can't shoot in whatever film you're shooting in your camera? I think so. I, I don't think it's maybe apparent or intentional. Like, I think it's just I don't see anything here with whatever I'm shooting. Obviously, format has something to do with that, too. True. Yeah. Hello, Eric and Vanya. This is Alan. Uh, my Instagram name is Alan being Alan. Most of the time I just load film in the camera and just go shoot. But there have been a couple of exceptions. If I'm using a really great black and white film like Silver Max, then I will put a red filter on it and purposely look at the world that way. There's a color stock that they don't make anymore. It's a Raleigh CR200. It's a slide film and that I will be very mindful and purposeful with as well. Now that, though, the Raleigh is, I think, think also the same stuff that's that's called crossbird i think so maybe if not it's very similar mm-hmm. i love that stuff and i yeah. don't think they have any more 120 at the moment not at either, the moment so. no how about you well i mean i i do make some exceptions you know i do kind of do it on an emulsion by emulsion basis i think a little bit mm-hmm. i certainly like to surround myself with a bunch of different emulsions to have that choice i have seen you pick an emulsion for a specific day like okay we're going here so i'm going to be shooting you know I think I'm going to put this in my camera for today. I guess that's not totally related to the composition, but it is a, it kind of narrows the choice down, like he was saying. Mm -hmm. Hey guys, it's Julian. I do not compose differently for black and white or color. I guess I must feel like if something's a good composition, it's a good composition. And I know this because uh, now with my RB67, I like to set up one frame and shoot it with a different colors uh, different stocks like i'll change from a color to a black and white and keep the frame exactly the same i've certainly done that you know it's one of the nice things about having an rb with with multiple backs i always have one back in black and white and one back in color and it makes things it gives me some choices but also with with large format like you know you can kind of switch around whatever you want to do as far as emulsions go yeah that does make it a little bit more simple but again you're using a large format camera which is not as simple as like pulling out maybe a 35 millimeter so uh, hello eric and vania uh, it's or from Israel again, and the answer is of course. 
Uh, in Israel, we have a very different line. During the summer, it's very, very harsh. In the winter, it's very, very soft. So for harsh light, uh, where the contrast and shadows are very strong, I use black and white. And in winter, when everything is soft and, and everything is green and flowing and glowing, I use color. So thank you very much again. Cheers. Ooh, I like that he changes films for seasons. That's fun. I like that. Yeah, that he has a, a emulsion for each season or each, each you know, light, at, at least. I, I really, really appreciate that. Hey, Nolan Bergstrom here at NolanPBNJ on Instagram. After looking at a lot of my pictures, I can tell I'm always looking for shadows, and I'm taking the same exact pictures from the same exact angles of basketball hoops every single time. I'm obsessed with how basketball hoops look with uh, all film types. The one thing I can't ever seem to nail correctly, though, with color film is taking a picture of the sky. I don't know what happens, but every time I develop pictures of the sky, they look uneven or underdeveloped or... I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Finding a good light range between like something that's in shadow. Like, so if you're shooting up towards the sky and the basketball hoop is in shadow and you're metering for that, then you're definitely going to have a blown out sky. So finding the right range between the two can be super difficult, but hopefully you'll get it. Also, I can hear that he's scanning. <laughs> I think that, well, I think that part of the problem might be his agitation when it comes to color. Maybe. I have noticed um, that he is using some ECN2 stuff, and we both know that getting the sky right with ECN2, there's a little trick to it. Yes. And we've kind of discovered that it is almost constant agitation. Yes. Real light, constant agitation the entire time. It is a very short developing time. Yeah. So. Yeah, going now, when real they develop- smooth and slow, slow yeah. and steady. Hey, it's James at All in Grain on Instagram. With color, I'm really focusing on uh, hues. So the different colors. If you have a bunch of different colors in one frame, it can be really overwhelming. It's a lot of focusing on selecting what colors I want in frame. Black and white, it's a little different. It's more focusing for me on tones, trying to interpret what the color I'm seeing is going to look like in black and white in that monochrome grayscale. So do you ever think of that? Like when you're shooting a color, like a very colorful scene in black and white, do you ever wonder like, well, how is this going to look? Do you ever wonder what tone this color is going to equate to? Not precisely, but I do use filters for that purpose. Sure. For like more dramatic tones or more dynamic tones. Like if I'm shooting like, I don't know, like an old car lot or something, and there's a bunch of old cars there, and I'm shooting it in color and I'm shooting it in black and white, I don't really pay attention too much to well this red car will be translated to this tone or this yellow car will be translated to this tone i probably should it's probably probably something i should figure out but again like shooting all of these weird ass emulsions that we do it's kind of a crapshoot. yeah i would say that it would be really great to just be able to stick with one emulsion or two emulsions just so you can really have a good relationship with it and know what works for it, what doesn't. Maybe at some point in my life I'll get there, but right now I'm just having so much fun trying them all. You know, I'd like to say I have some big, long, technical answer for how I would compose in color as opposed to black and white, but honestly, I just shoot. If it comes out, it comes out, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. It's an honest way to say kind of what we've been saying with, I don't know how this color translates to whatever tone. It's it's honest. It is honest. I like that. Because I have a feeling that we both kind of do that sometimes. Hello, it's Jamie Maldonado, Jamie M. Photo. The way I 
tend to photograph color now is like black and white. So there's a chance, depending on the various factors, that I might not even photograph the scene with color or with black and white. And I would find a different scene to shoot with the color or black and white. He's not even going just by composition, but going by scene, like the entire like scene. Mm-hmm. Jamie's been doing a lot lately, shooting a lot, doing a lot of portraits, getting out there. Whatever he's doing, seems like he's doing it well. I often open the back of the camera and see black and white or color and think that's not what I thought it was. Uh, so in a practical sense, maybe there isn't too much difference, but I'm trying to capture something different than what the eye sees. And with black and white, that means seeing things in tones and trying to impose a contrast. But with color, uh, for me, it's more about trying to shift the color. And the biggest difference comes in when we're talking about double exposures and color is so much more forgiving. But the payout for black and white double exposure that works is great. You don't have the color to make everything make sense. So if you can simplify it, match tones, you can create something that wasn't there. He brought up an interesting dilemma, which is, I think he means when he's done with with the role, opening it up and and seeing that, oh, shit, I was shooting color. Yeah, I was totally going to comment on that, too, because I think I've done that several times. Oh, God, yeah. Until we both discovered the wonderful gift from the gods that is washi tape. Yes. (laughs) And so get yourself some maybe half inch, maybe three quarter inch wide uh, plain washi tape and write the emulsion on it and maybe the date when you put it in there or the date when you're done with it. Maybe have different colors of tape for black and white and color. Like I use a white or gray tape for my black and white and a fluorescent yellow tape for my color. Hmm. Just a tip. It could work. Can I throw in another tip? Yeah, what's the other tip? The other tip would be just lay out all your film and pre-write them and put them on the film itself. So maybe you're not using it at the moment, but when you pull that film out, you can peel the tape off of the can and stick it on your camera when you're ready. Yeah, that's perfect. I was actually uh, planning to go through my fridge this weekend and label all of the film that I have. (gasps) Can we do that together? That sounds like fun. We'll listen to music, we'll make the playlist, and we will washi tape party (laughs) that sounds like a perfect idea i want to do that hey guys it's nick with the analog experience on instagram initially i was going to say yes because obviously color black and white you're looking at different subject material but as i look through all my photos i'm gonna say no because I feel like generally I'm drawn to the same thing, very contrasting situations, whether in color or black and white. Hmm. I like this. I do too. (laughs) I like the idea of thinking that I do something and being convinced that I do something and then looking at the evidence and just saying, oh no, I don't do that at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably what I'm going to, I'm going to say I do something in my answer and it's, I'm probably a crock of shit. (laughs) (laughs) so i guess we should probably answer this ourselves vanya do you compose differently in color than you do black and white i'm second guessing myself just a tiny bit after listening to everybody's answers (laughs) yeah me too (laughs) uh i'm gonna say 
yes, okay. I do compose differently. <laughs> and I might be going out on the limb here, but I want to say I pay more attention when I'm shooting in black and white. For instance, in black and white, I notice how shadows play into a scene. And I don't think I do that with color. When I shoot color film, I try to use the bright color or complementary colors against plain backdrops. That might be the only thing I really do. I do more, but those things are what really stand out for me when I'm looking through my photographs. Okay. I won't be telling you all my secrets just yet. I'm sure I have like some other little details I do when I'm shooting color or black and white. But for the most part, I think those two are the first things that I notice. Okay. How about you? Well, okay. When we first came up with this question, I really was not sure. I started looking at my photos like Nick was looking at his photos and kind of thinking, well, I have this in mind. Do I do this? And so I think I do. I remember when I first started shooting film again, I was wondering why are none of my color shots coming out when it's overcast? What do you have to do to color to make it look nice when it's overcast? Live in Seattle. It's overcast quite often. Then I realized that like, oh shit, I should be shooting black and white. And so since then, I generally don't shoot color when it's overcast, similar to how Aura was saying. That's kind of not always true, because I do shoot a lot of black and white when it's sunny too. But I think I'm also a little bit like Julian, where I will do the same shot twice. Even though I think I disagree with him saying that, I think I do that. And it, <laughs> and it might just be an experiment on my part to see like what I like better. And maybe I'm just learning and maybe I'm trying to figure out what I like. And, and maybe he is too. Um, I know that I will avoid shadows, like, like the plague when I'm shooting color. Like, do you remember that one photo I took of Cedar Hill in Idaho with like the long road going down yes. into this valley with a cow on it? I know exactly which one you're talking about. Because there is a big shadow over the road, I didn't shoot that in color. Or if I did, I didn't shoot, I shot it like maybe once in color and didn't do anything with it. So it's that photo that like, okay, I can, I can do this in black and white. I know how to capture this in black and white. And with color, I didn't, even though it was nice and sunny, I didn't know how to do it. And I think that is part of it is like my own ignorance, but also I've become a little disillusioned with color recently in the same way that I become disillusioned with 35. I'm certainly not going to say I'm never shooting 35 again. And I'm absolutely not going to say that I'm never shooting color again. That's ridiculous, but I'm, I'm narrowing my focus in photography without really even trying. And that's, that's a really fun thing to to be going through right now i'm, I'm enjoying it a lot hey, 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 hey. hey eric yeah what, what is it <laughs> i have no, no idea what you're doing <laughs> hey eric Hey, Vanya. <laughs> Have you noticed we got a new logo? Yeah, we, we do. It's of uh, this photo booth picture that we took at Policon this year. Yes, we used the strip in our 6x7 zine, but we've also incorporated it into our logo. So yeah, we we took this uh, photo booth photo when we were at Policon. You remember the, there was like a bar we went to there, and there was a, a photo booth there. And we were like really, really, really excited. So we're like, let's just do it, let's do it, let's do it. Yeah, that was awesome. It's If you guys have picked up the 6x7 zine, you have seen this photo strip because it is in the back. And all of this wraps up very nicely into our feature and the guest we're about to call. Yay! Yeah, so... <laughs> so, Vanya, do you have any amazing memories of photo booths? I do. Okay. I mean, obviously, Policon was awesome. It's Of course. It's always a really, really fun surprise to see a photo booth. When you see one, you're like, at least for me, I don't know. I'm like, oh my God, it's a photo booth. And is it working? (laughs) And if it is, it's like, yes, we have to. I don't care if it's $20. (laughs) 
Usually it's not. Usually it's still pretty cheap. But my most recent memory besides that one, me and my cousin Emily were in Florence. We went to Italy for a five-day really quick trip. And we found one on the street after drinking like a bottle of wine. (laughs) We were very (laughs) excited about it. So we got our picture taken. Yeah, it was just a really good memory. We look super funny and awkward in a few of them. And I think it just captured exactly what it felt like at that moment. I have it actually in my car visor. So I look at it all the time. (laughs) Oh, I miss her. How about you? What's yours? Oh, God. Mine, it goes back to, I think, seventh or eighth grade. And I was at the amusement park that was local to us called Knobles Grove. And yes, you you do pronounce the K. <laughs> still one of my favorite places on Ooh, earth. Is it still there? It's still there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it really is. Fun. <laughs> it's very fun. Very German. Very central Pennsylvania. <laughs> So I was there with my girlfriend at the time. Oh, I know where this is going. Of course, photo booths are very often kissing booths. (laughs) And that's what this was. And, you know, it was one of those things where you are, I don't know, 14, 13, maybe. I don't know how old I was, 12. And you, you, you put the, did the money and the, and the thing. You close that curtain for the privacy. You close the curtain. (laughs) And you're not sure if she wants to kiss you the same way that you want to kiss her. So flash, you are there and you're kind of close. Flash. And then you get a little closer and then flash and then you do the kiss thing. And the fourth picture, you're just kind of like, oh, damn, that's over. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It would be so amazing to find a strip of someone actually trying to kiss somebody and the other person was shocked and like it was not wanted. And then it was like them like slapping them (laughs) in the face or something. (laughs) Oh, I want to recreate that. (laughs) Okay. Maybe next Policon. <laughs> so that was mine. Yeah, that's mine. I think I still have the strip somewhere. I can't guarantee you that if I do, you'll see I, us. You have to. If Okay, here's the thing. If you share a story on the podcast, you have to find <laughs> where the strip is and scan it in and share it at least in stories. That is not the rule. <laughs> there are no rules. <laughs> I'm going to share that. mine. So for this episode, we are focusing on photo booths. We've happened upon a photographer who is collecting and restoring them. So uh, let's give Brie a call, shall yes. we? Hello. Hello. This is Brianna Conley Saxon, and like most of us, she collects photo booths. Her journey has taken her from one coast to the other, from an Alabama thrift store to a couple of Russians. It's an unusual tale, so hold on tight. Let's start pretty simply here. What's your background in film photography? I guess the first film photography I did was actually in high school, and um, I actually even convinced my photographer, or I guess my art teacher, to make an AP photography class just so that I could use the darkroom longer. Nice. <laughs> so nice. I clearly like fell in love with it pretty early on, and then um, I got a BFA from University of Alabama with a focus in photography, and um, my secondary was printmaking. After graduating, it was like super fine art, I would say, at Alabama. So I decided to go to the Brooks Institute of Photography, which is in Santa Barbara. And it was like photo boot camp. So it was like a private photo school only. So pretty much in debt to photography my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) 
this whole episode that we're doing is uh, about photo booths, the history and all of that. And we'll get to that later in, in our episode. You mentioned photo booths. You've got a few. Got a few now. Yeah. Where did that initial interest come from? So basically, I found my first photo booth at a thrift store in Alabama. And actually, my friend found it and she called me and she just knew I was the crazy person who would buy something like that. Because, you know, we were younger and it was like $200 at the thrift store. And I was like, I don't know how this works, but I'm buying it. (laughs) (laughs) I would have too. (laughs) And it weighed like 300 no, it weighs 800 pounds because there's literally like hard transmission inside of it. <laughs> so I was like, I don't even know how to get this out of the thrift store. <laughs> so I was dating my husband at the time and we lived in an apartment on the second story. So we had to rent a storage unit and hire movers to get it out of the thrift store and into the storage unit. And we, I didn't even know what I was doing and <laughs> uh, really just jumped full in basically. Uh, yeah, so I found... Two people, basically. One was this older Canadian guy, and one was this Russian in Pennsylvania. Oh, and um, the Canadian dude was like, I can kind of talk you through some things you'll have to update to make it work. Because at this point, I hadn't even plugged it in because I heard that if like it has oil in it and a transmission, and if I like run it without those things that I could like harm it more, basically. Mm-hmm. So I just was like scared to even plug it in. And the Russian wanted to come pick it up and, like, charge me a pretty penny to update it and tell me how it works. Um, Wow. So we thought we were going to do the Canadian thing. And then, you know, like, somehow five years passed. So (laughs) (laughs) so somehow it was just a giant paperweight for a very long time. Um, Because I was just busy, like, with my photography business Mm -hmm. and, like, life and whatever we got married we bought a house and in fact we had to like pick a house that had a garage space for the photo booth so that we could stop paying the storage unit (laughs) um so eventually we were just like okay let's just pay the russian because clearly we're not gonna work with the canadian this russian dude came there's actually two of them so one's in pennsylvania and one's in california and they worked together, I guess. And they one just came in the middle of the night and came and got my photo. It was like <laughs> eleven o'clock at night, and I was like, "What am I doing? Who's this Russian?" And my neighbors probably think I'm crazy. And we lived on this really steep hill, so like getting the photo booth out was like nuts. Um, so he took it, and then all of a sudden, the other Russian in Pennsylvania, I guess one the one guy took it to California. And then the Pennsylvania guy was like, I think you should come. I was going to do a Russian impression. I should not. He was like, I think you should come, like, learn, train under me, basically. And I'm like, okay. So, like, come to Pennsylvania? And he's like, yeah. And he, I, I was like, okay. So, in my head, I'm like, I'll just, like, stay in New York and, like, take a train now and learn from him for a day. And he was like, oh, no, no. Like, a week monday through friday i'm like okay so like five days and i'm like okay well like how long each day and he's like eight to five i'm like whoa wow i guess i need to stay in pennsylvania not new york (laughs) um so i bought a plane ticket and went there and had no idea what was happening and just kind of hoped for the best had basically i was like i don't want to really want rent a car so i convinced him if i got a hotel i actually asked if i could get an air mattress just to sleep in the warehouse and he was like oh just get a hotel and i'll pick you up and i was like okay (laughs) so (laughs) 
Because I was trying to cut costs. I was young. Anyway, so I stay in this, like, Motel 6, and he picks me up every morning. And we go to his warehouse, and he literally just had me, like, completely take it apart and put it back together and learn what all the different things were and how to change the chemistry and history on it and whatever. And, I mean, he basically was like, you're not going to learn how to really run everything for several years. Like, you're going to have to experience the booth messing up and you fixing it in time, basically. And so Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. So anyway, I go back home and my photo booth arrives in Alabama and I buy all my chemistry and film from him. So, like, I know nobody else (laughs) (laughs) except these Russians and that one Canadian, kind of. And so I just solely depended on them and they taught me everything. And I eventually bought a second booth from them. So, I mean, I found that first booth for, like, 200 bucks, but at this point, I have now invested a lot of money and time. Oh, yeah. The second booth, I guess I made my money back, finally, from the first booth after a couple years. So then I was like, okay, well, if I know this and I have one, I might as well have two, right? So <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and I bought a second one, which, you know, they're like the price of a brand new car. Because they don't make them anymore, so basically you're, like, finding parts from broken ones and re-putting them back together. I had the second one for a while, and it was also black and white. It was a little newer of a model, so it wasn't as beautifully old classic looking. So my first one's from the 1960s, and then this other one I bought from them was from, like, the 70s. Okay. Do you know what model numbers they are for the people that really, really get into (laughs) photo booths? (laughs) Yes. So my first one that I found at the thrift store was a model 14. Okay. And then... Um, the one that I bought from them was a model 21 and it was sort of like any, I want a second one and I know they're hard to find. So like, give me whatever you got. And also the 21 can be color as well. So that was something I wanted to experience at some point. Cool. So after a year of having the second one, I guess I did convert it to color for a year. Wow. And that was awesome because color is like really rare because it's super expensive because they don't make the film anymore, paper. So basically, it's like whatever exists in storage or stock somewhere is like all that there is. And so there is a good stockpile of black and white film paper, but mm-hmm. the color, there's much less of. Um, I mean, it's still scary that like, you know, it doesn't really exist anymore at all. <laughs> Uh, and it's something that I am like gambling will be figured out <laughs> in time, I guess, because I do think they're starting to like trend, maybe, or people are starting to see them again, yeah. I guess. So since we just moved to Idaho, I was like, well, I left my two in Alabama because they were doing well there. So I kind of actually had trained my mom to take care of them, (laughs) Um, which now I've also had to find somebody else and sort of start training somebody else because I don't want my mom to be changing the chemistry Mm because they're in bars and, you know she's like older and pandemic again yeah 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 we that was one of our questions actually what goes into maintaining them so there's like 14 tanks inside the booth and Mm -hmm. only like half of them are chemistry and the other half are just water and there's a heating belt around it so within a week the heat alone just starts to evaporate the chemistry Mm -hmm. so the most basic thing that needs to be done is 
you just top off water in all the tanks once a week. And towards the end of chemistry life, you'll turn the heat up to like get better contrast. Oh. Like a normal chemistry, I yeah. guess, in a way. After about six weeks or so, it'll start being like super sepia tone or like kind of muddy looking. So there's like kind of things you can do, like bump the heat up or open the aperture or there's like a booster that I've learned now that you can buy that like kind of bumps the contrast a little bit that you add next to the developer. But um, then the other thing that's major is you have to change the chemistry. Mm -hmm. So that involves like taking all of the chemistry that's in there out and dumping and cleaning. And I'm pretty OCD. Like a lot of it's really just OCD cleaning. And maybe that's just me. Maybe other photo people are not like that. I don't know. Uh, the Russian is not. He, I did learn earlier this year that he just like is really quickly to change things and like not <laughs> spend the time. And then the film can run out. There's about 900 strips in a roll of film oh, wow. in black and white. In color, it was 750. Just random facts for you. <laughs> no, we love it. These are very good. <laughs> One of half of our podcast is this and the other half is we do a developing podcast so what chemicals are you are you using in here so i mean it's called photo paper developer but i know it's from not like a place you buy normal darkroom stuff so like i can't say that i've like dissected what's in it okay <laughs> it just says developer on the bottle okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, uh the other chemicals there's like there's one that's called bleach, which is just your stop bath, mm -hmm. and it's very red and will, like, stain your clothes. And then there's a cleaning powder, which is, like, fixer, I guess, yeah. which changes the photo to make the print visible. And then toner, which just kind of is, like, the wash, rinse, I okay. guess, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, the toner's what smells the most. That's, like, when little bars like to complain that it smells like um, eggs. <laughs> like a dark room like it smells like a dark room <laughs> and for color honestly i don't know what they were numbered one two and three and i knew what tanks to put them in <laughs> so what model are the two newest ones yeah now that i've learned a lot more i was very adamant about getting <laughs> the two 14s so okay. now i have three 14s because i just like the look and feel of them better mm -hmm. um and then I'm glad I have the 21 so that I can do color whenever I feel like it. Um, so yeah, so now I have four. And um, one of them I put outside of a record store here oh. in Boise. So that was like kind of scary to put one outside. Like outside, outside? <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Because that's how they originally were in Europe. And so a lot of them were at like train stations and stuff like that. And yeah. so they were made to be outside. Boise is like really clean and safe. So I felt like it was a good gamble to try if I was going to put one outside. Here's the place to do it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now, can these machines, they can handle more than one customer at a time, right? Yeah, they have seven arms uh, oh, carriers okay. on... It's called a spider. Mm -hmm. So the spider has seven carriers. And some of the really older boots, I think, only have one carrier. Mm -hmm. So you can only do one at a time. I think maybe there's a booth that has two. But I think for the most part, it's one or seven. You say there's a lot of paper left over. I think. think. So I've been told. Okay. I've not seen it with my own eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually it's going to go out of date, like beyond use, or it's just going to be used up. What, what are your plans <laughs> then? Yeah, you, I did see where you asked, you're like, do you roll your own paper? And I was like, I guess that's what I'm going to have to do at some point. 
Um, but I don't even know how you would do that because it is like a lot of the booth really works on like a tension based thing. So I feel like even if you rolled it and taped it, I'm not sure it would have like the same tension on pulling through the film holder through the camera, through the carriers. Like, I don't know. That makes me hesitant to think that would not run smoothly yeah i don't know you know polaroid stopped and came back so (laughs) (laughs) i'd like to think somebody if it trends enough or there's enough people that actually still are running classic photo booths i don't want to be the one that figures out how to make (laughs) the film so this is actually a good uh segue into this last question that we have um apart from photography does other analog media play a role in your life. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Runs my life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we've always been into analog stuff, my husband and I, and um, his dad was like founder of the record collectors in Alabama. And we have a huge collection and it wasn't till like a year or two ago that we started the record label. And a lot of what we do, is re-releasing older music that was never even put online, I guess, that was only recorded on vinyl. Mm. So we're trying to help preserve some of that stuff so that it doesn't die or get lost forever. So yeah, vinyl, printmaking, photography, like, that's, we're old school. Awesome, awesome. We live for nostalgia. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Good talking to you. Thank (laughs) you so much. Bye bye. We have all done it. Stepped inside a photo booth, closed the curtain, inserted the right amount of change, only to be caught off guard by the flash of the camera. By the second, you were almost posed, and third, well, that's always the best. The last one for good measure. Two and a half minutes later, that warm strip of photos falls out of the slot with memories captured forever. But where did this all start? Sure, we know the basic history of photography, but when did people decide they needed the near instant gratification of having photos of themselves in minutes? If you Google who invented the photo booth, Google will tell you that it was Anatole Josepho in 1925. And that's not exactly wrong, but it's not exactly right either. Josepho's story is the most interesting and the most successful, but he wasn't the first. But who can resist the tale of a young man fleeing Siberia and attaining the American dream? We sure can't, so we're going to talk about this fellow soon enough. But first... The photo booth as we, or maybe as our parents knew it, didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't even start as a way for the public to get their photos taken without a photographer. The very first photo booths required at least one attendant, often many more. These were called automatic cameras. What was automatic wasn't so much the camera, but the developing and processing. Starting in 1888, a couple of inventors from Baltimore William Pope and Edward Poole filed a patent for such a device, but it doesn't seem like they even made a prototype. A year later, however, someone did, and that someone was Ernest Theophile Engelbert, a typewriter maker and inventor of one of the first cameras that looks like a gun. Way to go. Anyway, his patent described the automatic ferrotype camera with automated development of the plate to be coin-operated. Not only did he make a working model, he showed it off at the Paris Exposition of 1889. The process was started when the sitter dropped a few coins into the cash box. It's not fully clear if the attendant was actually required, as it does seem to have been at least 
capable of being fully automatic. After the coin was dropped and the sitter sat, a bell would ring to indicate the shutter was open and would keep ringing until the exposure was complete. Since these were tin types being made in low light, that was probably a few seconds. Five minutes later, the customer had a finished tintype. Though basically successful, Engelbert encountered a slew of complaints that the tintypes were too dark. This led manufacturers to conclude that an attendant was necessary to meter for the proper exposure and remind the sitter to sit still. Through the 1890s, the automatic camera paired with an attendant took off. The process was streamlined and essentially perfected. In an 1894 edition of the Baltimore Sun, there's an advertisement for the automatic photo machine boasting, your picture taken in less than a minute. Soon they began cropping up everywhere. A nearly identical ad ran in a Connecticut paper three years later. There were also similar ads in Boston and London. In 1889, England's Matthew Steffens invented the autophoto. It was basically a photo booth, but apparently needed an entire room of people to run it. This doesn't make sense, and there's nothing at all about Mr. Steffens anywhere in the literature that we could find. Still, this was, I suppose, a photo booth, and for some reason, Steffens often gets mentioned in these discussions, but honestly, we're not sure why. Apart from being a fairly large step backwards for the automatic photo machine racket, nothing seems to set him apart from the rest. And there were others, mostly from France, England, and the United States. From what we gather, it was simply an attendant with a special camera who could photograph and develop your picture in about a minute. Handy, but not exactly a photo booth. Though you were in a booth getting your photo taken and printed, so maybe? While all this was going on, a young boy from Omsk, Siberia named Anatol Josefowitz was discovering his love for the brownie box camera. He saw one at a young age and became obsessed, wanting to know not just how to shoot them, but how they worked. His father enrolled him in a technical school to foster his inclinations, but by age 15, Anatol had enough of Siberia and wanted to explore the world. So 15 is maybe a bit young, but his father encouraged him, telling the young man, life itself, my son, is a supreme teacher. Go, travel, work, study, listen, see, understand, Fear no thing. Fear no man. Come back when you will. I will still be waiting for you, and I want to be proud of you when you come back. Remember that, my boy. Won't you? No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) Of course, his father wasn't just going to send off a 15-year-old to fend for himself. He arranged for Anatol to stay with relatives in Berlin. When he arrived, he almost immediately found a photo studio and got himself a job, though he had never used a camera before in his life. The studio taught him everything he needed to know, from taking portraits to developing and printing. As he learned and worked, he soon understood his life's goal, to make portraits available to the common people. At this time, portraits were usually only available to those who could afford them, and Anatol wanted to somehow change that. To attempt this, he shoved off to America, but then couldn't find a job, so he returned back to Europe, and this time dropping himself into Budapest. Budapest in the early 1900s was vibrant and thriving. This was just what the 19-year-old Anatol needed. He opened a studio and gave some real thought to his automatic photo machine. Somehow or another, he made a prototype and sold it in Vienna. It's not really known what came of this, or what it even was. When World War I started, being a Russian didn't exactly sit well with the Hungarian authorities. While he was still allowed to run his photo studio, he wasn't allowed to photograph on the streets. With a lot more spare time on his hand, he greatly improved on his prototype, now called the Photomaton, and perfected a photo paper that could be shot upon to make 
positives. Prior to this, all the automatic photo machines shot on tintypes. This is because tintypes always made a positive image. But getting the image to somehow stick to paper directly from the camera was seen as probably impossible. But our dear Anatole got his own formula down and was quickly producing direct-to-paper shots with lovely tones. When the war ended, Anatole wanted to go back home to see his father. It was 1919, and with the land and rail systems ravaged by war, as well as the Bolsheviks coming to power, this was no easy task. The next phase of his life reads like an action movie. He and his friend disguised themselves as Austrian soldiers, sneaking through the countryside east to the Russian border. There, they ditched the uniforms. Being essentially wanderers, they were arrested a few times and managed to escape into the general direction of home. Just as they were about to reach Siberia, they were caught and thrown into a prison. This was much more heavily guarded institution. To break out, they had to fight a few guards. Now, all of this is coming from Anatol, a charming man who loves a good story. So take of it what you will. On the run yet again, the duo lasted nearly three weeks with little food, little water, and in the biting Siberian cold before being captured by Bolsheviks. But Anatol's charm saw them through again. After three weeks, he was able to befriend the officer in charge, convincing him that they weren't spies. They let them go with two train tickets home to Omsk. He did all of this to come home and see his father. This would be the last time he would see him. Home was drastically different. He lasted about a year there before leaving once more, this time for Shanghai, China. In 1921, Shanghai was an up-and-coming international city, and art was at the forefront. Anatol, now 27, was all over it. This was his chance to start anew. Altering his last name from Josephowitz to Josepho, he opened a new studio to great success. Even with a booming business, he was drawing up blueprints for a new and improved photomaton. A few years later, in 1924, Anatol set off again to America, landing in Seattle and then heading down to Hollywood. After working a bit in Hollywood, getting motion picture experience, he headed to New York. There, he was finally able to raise the cash he needed to make a working model of the photomaton. Though there was only a single machine, he opened a studio on Broadway. Soon people were lined up around the block. A mere quarter, 25 cents, procured you a set of eight unique portraits. What set Anatol's photomaton apart from the rest was that it used paper instead of tintypes. He was able to employ the process he perfected in Shanghai. After the paper was positioned behind the lens and exposed, it would be dunked into a number of small tanks. These contained developer, water, bleach, fixer, toner, and water once again. The paper then would be squeegeed and dried before it slid out of the machine. This process took eight minutes and could only handle one customer at a time. Once the photos were finished, an attendant would upsell the customer on options like enlargement and hand tinting. Its big drawback was that it required plumbing to function. You couldn't just plop one of these machines into any old arcade. You had to really create a space for it. Though Anatol was raking in the cash, there really wasn't a feasible way for him to expand. He had built a couple machines, but he was an inventor, not a businessman. About a year after opening his Photomaton studio, Anatol was approached by Henry Morgenthau, one of the founders of the Red Cross. Morgenthau had assembled a corporation specifically to buy the machine and its U.S. rights. In early 1927, they offered Anatol $1 million, which was around $15 million in today's money, and he accepted, giving half of it away to charity. The following year, he sold the European rights and kind of disappeared. He moved back to the L.A. area, where he lived until 1980. There's even a Boy Scout camp named after him nearby. Photomaton Inc. was formed and within a few months began manufacturing machines for distribution all over the United States. Anatol's design was tweaked here and there, but it's 
nearly identical to his original. The photomatons spread across the country. They were sort of like the McDonald's of photo studios. Okay, they were technically run by photographers, but it wasn't exactly Ansel Adams behind the camera. It really wasn't anybody at all. The shops were staffed, but for the most part, the workers were there to upsell and move the customers along. A few years after the start of the company, one of its employees, an inventor named John Slack, managed to make the machine plumbless. It no longer required plumbing. This new design used a self-contained water system, a feature that was carried over until the very end of production. Slack was also able to speed up development times and created a two-way mirror that the customer could look into and the camera could shoot out of. He soon left the company and started his own photomaton store in Times Square. Shortly after the time when Anaton Josefo sold his machine to Photomaton Inc., a Canadian inventor named David A. McCowan thought he could improve on the design by incorporating ideas from an automatic camera machine recently invented by GE. He was able to produce a much smaller machine called the Phototeria, with some additional touches, such as a small cuckoo bird that would pop out right before the camera fired. Rather than a series of eight photos like the Photomaton, McCowan's machine produced a circular photo with a mirror on the other side. The phototeria spread all over Canada. He attempted to gain access to the American market via Chicago, but Chicago in the 1930s was run by Al Capone. A few words with the gangster and McCowan reconsidered the market. He did eventually sell to a Minnesota-based vending machine company. They changed the name to Fotet and competed with the photomatons. Through the 1930s, the photobooth phenomenon exploded across both America and Europe. Dozens of small companies made their own or copied others' work. There was hardly a town without one. Over the next couple decades, the booths became smaller and more streamlined, faster too. Some produced a single photo, sometimes framed, while others produced a series. World War II saw many of the factories retrofitted for the war effort, but in the late 40s and 1950s, the race was back on. The auto photo company made the biggest leaps in technology with their Model 9, followed by the Model 11, but it was 1964's Model 14 that most of us remember. The 14 was produced well into the 1990s and was at some point changed to the Photo Me. Color was introduced to the machine in the 1970s and actually became the standard by the 1990s. As cameras became more affordable and almost everyone had one, the purpose of the photo booth changed from taking portraits of a single person, usually to give out to friends and family, to an event. We'd find a booth and cram as many of our friends into it as possible. The strips became souvenirs of our vacations. Once the digital changeover was complete, most of the machines were scrapped or converted into digital. The ones that exist now are collector's items and novelties. What drove the earliest photo booth customers into the small studios was the chance to get a portrait made of themselves. Today, that same drive is there. It's just that we can do it ourselves and we do it a lot. Photo booths have gone all but extinct, replaced like so many things by our phones. Today, most of the photo booths that exist are digital. And at events, they're often just some guy with a camera, a printer, and a bunch of cardboard mustaches. To the analog shooter, the remaining photo booths are a direct connection to the arcades of our youth. The county fairs, the theaters, and amusement parks. For many of us, it was our first kiss, our first taste of independence. These were our photos. They weren't shot by our parents hovering over birthday cakes by Olin Mills or the creepy guy who came to the school to take our yearbook pictures. These strips were made for us, by us. They were hidden in backpacks and pasted in lockers. They were our way of saying that we were here, we existed. And from then on, every memory that we had of that day was captured forever in those four photos. 
So the past couple of weeks, we've been researching this photo booth history, and it's been a ton of fun. And we found some resources for looking at photo booth photos, if you guys are interested. First, I guess we just kind of searched eBay a lot, didn't we? For just like just random photo booth pictures, if you search yeah. vintage photo some booth. Some of the old ones are really fun. Oh my God, they're really, really fun. And they're constantly changing. And you know, if you want to, you can buy some. I like them because it's simple. It's usually just plain yeah. or it's some, some sort of curtain. So you really get to focus on their clothing and what they're wearing. Yeah. And that dates them. It really does. You can kind of pinpoint uh, the date you know, within the decade anyway. And it's really kind of cool. I actually bought uh, a two strip of, of, of a photo booth photo of a woman holding a telephone. And it's really odd at that time, which was probably the 1930s, to have a mm-hmm. prop. Yeah, she was probably really proud of her tell. Like, look, I don't what I got. I don't know. It's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> photo, and I'm definitely definitely going to share it. She's a beautiful woman with a, with a telephone, and in one picture, in the other picture, no telephone, and she does look sadder in the other picture without one. So I have a feeling she liked being on the phone. There are also books. There's three that that we got. The first is is Photo Booth by Babette Hines. This is more of an art book. There's no history in it. There's a little bit of an essay that kind of gives you sort of like a almost like a fine art feel to photo booth photos. And it's good. It's it's really chocked full of photos. And then there's uh, American Photo Booth by Naki Goranen, I think. And this is more of a history. There is still quite a lot of photos in there. And it's... it's uh, both of them, I think, are kind of necessary if you're really into photo booths. What about what do you think about the photo booth a biography by Meg Fitzgerald, though? Uh, it was great. It's kind of like a graphic novel. It's her personal experience with photo booths, and she kind of got really, really into it for quite some time. Well, she did end up doing like an art project with the photo booth photos. What caught me was that when she was in high school, she would go every day to the photo booth and take her photo regardless Mm -hmm. of what she was wearing regardless of what day she was having and so every day for years i guess she would do this and she would have a document of that day so if she was in a bad mood photo would be of her in a bad mood and if she was in a good mood it would be of her in a good mood and that's such an interesting thing to do and this was before you know we had cell phones and we did all the selfies and all of that so it's kind of a i don't know an interesting way to tap into that something that we kind of take for granted now and probably wouldn't do now Yes, yeah, so there's also tons of websites, but two stick out, the photoboothjournal.com and also photoboot.net, which you can find locations of actual like old film photo booths. And there's people on there that comment like, oh, this one's like permanently closed or this one, you know, I went and visited it on this date and it's still running. So that that was really cool to find. Yeah. And we always kind of batted around the idea of doing a photo booth or at least doing the movie Amelie or something, which features a photo booth. And Mm -hmm. we never really considered like the history of it. We weren't sure on the angle that we were approaching it. And when we figured out the history, it all kind of fell together. But with that, we looked at, oh, we've seen hundreds, maybe thousands of different photos. And God, it's just been really a wonderful like peep into the past because a lot of the old photos that we're used to seeing are of famous people or of, mm-hmm. you know, pastoral scenes or in the Depression or something like that, something that's iconic. But these aren't that. No, these are just like normal people, everyday people. I mean, you can tell that they were dressed they're dressed up nice because, you know, when you went anywhere, you would dress up nice. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I guess we kind of do that, but a little not bit. to the, that extent. Yeah. These were people, a lot of them anyway, who this might be the only photo that being taken of them, at least for, for that time period. So mm-hmm. they're going to get dressed up a little bit. They're going to treat this as maybe, you know, kind of going out on the town. They can't afford to sit in a real studio, but this is what they've got. And that's 
Something cool about that. Yeah, seeing a collection of people's faces that you wouldn't necessarily ever have had seen is just interesting in itself. I guess another thing we kind of take that for granted now because, you know, Instagram and selfies and we see faces all the time. But being able to see faces from like 80 years ago or 50 years ago or 20 years ago, even even your own face, like, you know, 20 years ago, you're like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) (laughs) it's I don't know. I love photography. I love taking pictures. But I also like looking at pictures and taking them in. This is very much a looking at uh, early selfies. And that's, I don't know, there's something about it that's very pure. So before we wrap this up totally, I guess we should get to the trivia question. And what was that? (gasps) Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was, who was the first artist to incorporate the photo booth into their work? And so we have the answer here. And so if you get this right, your reward is a single solitary pat on the back, which you will have to administer yourself. And that's not much, but it's better than a slap on the belly with a wet trout. So here we go. The answer is Andre Breton. He's known as the father of surrealism. He, along with a dozen or so of his surrealist pals, took a bunch of photo booth shots. So in 1928, the first photomaton opened in Paris. Breton instructed his friends, including a young Salvador Dali, to shoot some with their eyes closed. And from these images, he made a weirdish little collage. And we'll post a bunch of these shots, because they're all somehow preserved, which is just wonderful, including all the ones with the eyes closed and the collage. We'll post the collage as well. We'll do this in our show notes and on IG. last episode did we even have any zines i don't think we had any zines in our last episode yeah we've been kind of dry on the zines but we do have zines for this episode so the first zine that we have is skating with she's and hers photos and interviews by amelia bajessi puffin i actually have in my hand volume number four and she has several different volumes of this so this was a bigger project and these are all available still too it's really cool she made some rules for her project it was basically every time she skated she would have to talk to strangers (laughs) and (laughs) ask them these questions if they were like women skaters which i thought was really cool and also she would have to have a camera with her uh one of the neat things about this scene is like you open the page and you know she has all all of the information and she has like a letter about the project um, and then there's a photograph of all the cameras that she used for the project and oh. that's really fucking cool yeah <laughs> and then she used only HP5 plus for this and developed them at home in her bathroom sink cool. and let me tell you, that definitely <laughs> resonates with me. I love this so much. Being a woman in surfing, I can relate to this because surfing is very male dominated. And I see what she was doing here. And I am in love with what she did. She has pictures of women skateboarding, all different age groups. And it's so cool. They're just like smiling and happy and, you know, Hey, they fall down and they get up and they do what they love. And I I just think it's such a cool thing. So she has a website if you're interested in picking them up. And she actually kind of did something super rad because of how things have been this past year. You can get a PDF of any of her zines for free. But I would highly recommend getting some physical copies. And they're about $4.95 sense on microcosm publishing and that link will be on our show notes yeah and what is her website it's smash the cool 
And the zine that we both got today is Caveland, Exploring Kentucky's Cave Country by Jesse Knifley. This is a full-color 8x8 zine. All of the photos were shot on a Bronica 2A, which was kind of and kind of still is a camera that I, I do want to eventually own, mostly shot on Kodak Portra. And, uh, God, you know, I haven't been the hugest Portra fan, but he really did did it well with this. That's maybe the perfect emulsion for what he was doing. Uh, what the pictures are, are kind of like the weird urban, rural, southern tourist trap mix. I think we were talking about it not that long ago on the podcast. Mm-hmm. How uh, this is something that I've wanted to shoot for a long time. And there's something very unique about these things in the South where the tourism is gone for the most part. Yeah, there's definitely like an overgrown feeling. You can see like the grass growing or the ivy growing over things. Yeah, this is a really, really essential zine. Out of all of the ones that we're, we're getting, there are, there are a few that are essential. And this is definitely in that. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it, this is his first zine. Uh, he... This is, it is, <laughs> it is so well done. Yeah. Very professional. I really love the map too. Yes, there's a little map in it. He does a little bit of history and a little bit of like, here's the cameras I use and the film I use. A little mm-hmm. bit of a game that he plays there too, which is very cool. Uh, there are a lot of signs for RC Cola. And I don't know exactly why. There's also a, a several Coke machines, including one that looks exactly like the one I grew up next to. So this is kind of uh, maybe an 80s, a, a rural 80s nostalgia, not like John Hughes movies uh, nostalgia. But you know, if you grew up in the 70s or 80s in a rural area, you're going to connect to this in a lot of really fun ways. It's been a while since I've opened up a zine and really just loved every single image in it. <laughs> I don't know if it's because it's square, the colors, or just, you know, the things that he photographed. It's page after page, so much fun. There's an image in here. It's a building, and it's called The Dive, which I'm assuming is a bar. And it has (laughs) a very old, like, woman in her bathing suit. It's honestly, I want this building. Like, I want to own that bar. So, I'm moving, I guess, to Kentucky. Cool. (laughs) I guess I'll stop surfing and do something else. (laughs) I have a feeling if you contact him at Haunted Film Co. on Instagram, bum a copy off of him. Like I said, it's full color. It's thick. I don't know how many pages it is. Like a billion. It's a lot of pages. It is absolutely worth it. I don't know how many he printed, but get on this if you're looking for something colorful and interesting and about kind of that rural decay that we all seem to kind of be attracted to for some reason. Alright, and lastly, we'd like to remind you yet again that we have a Patreon. We do. We have uh, early episodes, we've got some snapshot episodes, and full interviews, depending on which tier you join. We've got a $3, a $5, and a $10. So just head on over to patreon.com slash allthroughalens. Uh, any little bit you can you can help us out with is, well, helpful. Who knew? Being helpful is helpful. Okay, so one of the things we wanted to do with Patreon was each episode feature a patron and uh, maybe talk about their, their IG account or their photos that they're doing. And so who have we got th- for the first one this week? You might know him as at gravity underscore train on IG. It's Nick Gaylord and our first patron. Yeah, he was the first one to sign up. So why not feature him first? Yeah, Uh, patron saint, Nick Gaylord. (laughs) He's got some really wonderful night shots. Again, more urban decay. And he's even shot a bit with a slow meow. So if you're on Instagram, uh, check him out. Give him a follow.
that's about all the podcasts we got for you today. But first, we'll remind you about the answering machine question that we asked earlier in the episode, which is, apart from photography, does other analog media play a role in your life? Like, you know, records, tapes, I don't know, VHS tapes, whatever. Maybe even, like, do a tangent into, like, vintage clothing. I don't know. You decide what this means. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthrowlens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthrowlens.podcast at gmail. And we're allthrowlens on Twitter. Vanya is at SurfMartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff all through a lens podcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from the Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so, so much for listening. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. Uh, Vanya. Yeah. Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. I was trying to get you to fucking talk. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>